In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes cost much more than dollars, we bring you expertise from around the world to ensure that everyone goes home safe every day. The internationally acclaimed Oil & Gas HSE podcast starts now with your host, Russell Stewart. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the OGGN HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network and sponsored by Anderson Hauser. Anderson Hauser is a global leader in measurement instrumentation services and solutions for industrial process engineering. They provide process solutions for flow measurement, level pressure, temperature analytics, and much more, optimizing processes and efficiency, safety, and environmental impact. They serve many industries across the globe, including a focus in oil and gas. Anderson Hauser, the people for process automation. Today, I have two guests on the show, and the first one is Melissa Jones, Melissa's general manager of Agilus. Agilus, A-G-I-L-U-S. Melissa, thanks for coming on the show. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Russell. But did I flunk Greek or Latin? Agilus, that's a strange name. Is that some kind of Greek acronym or something? You know, we just want to convey to our customers that we're agile and flexible, especially when it comes to the energy transition and helping them to execute their projects. We're part of the Bechtel group of companies. Well, my hat's off for being that innovative. Okay, so Bechtel's an American engineering procurement construction and project management company, one of the largest construction companies in the United States, right? You're absolutely right. Bechtel's been in business since 1898. We're a privately held company, and currently we have Brendan Bechtel. He is the fifth generation of Bechtel at the helm of our company. Wow, that's interesting. So we're talking about an American company, international in scope, and it's not publicly held. You're absolutely right. We have four different business units, mining and metals, infrastructure, Bechtel Energy, and nuclear security environmental. And in fact, we are starting a new portion of our business called manufacturing and technology. And we have a footprint all around the world. Okay. So you mentioned Bechtel Energy. So that segues into my next guest, Martin Taylor. Martin is the manager for sulfur technologies for Bechtel. It's actually called Bechtel Energy Technologies and Solutions. Martin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Russell. Okay, so you used the term there just a second ago, Melissa, energy transition, which for some of us can be a euphemism for change, and that's not always a pleasant subject. You know, the old joke about how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? It only takes one, but the light bulb's got to want to change. Or my favorite modern one is how many Apple technicians does it take to change the light bulb? And the answer to that's none. They've discontinued the socket and you got to buy a whole new house. But anyway, <laughs> we're going to be talking about change and help us to want to here, Melissa. <laughs> Happy to. You know, the last two years, we've seen big change in our personal lives and in our work lives. You know, the COVID pandemic and then the resulting oil and gas pricing changes really gave the industry a bit of a pause. People have come back to work thinking about how can we build the projects in the most sustainable way possible. Large companies have rebranded, have refocused their energy towards still oil and gas-based organizations, but moving towards cleaner energy. And investors are thinking differently about where they put their dollars. They want to invest in projects that have a sustainable component, that they're built sustainably, and that they're decreasing the overall carbon footprint of the asset that is being built. Okay. All right. So I should have said this at the beginning. 
so that I could give some shameless advertising for API Houston chapter, of which I am the chairman, the outgoing chairman, thank goodness. But mm-hmm. I actually met you at an API meeting where you did a presentation on carbon ca- agilus and their role in carbon capture. And I ask you then, and I may just be a little dense or a little slow, but it's kind of like the expression energy transition. It's a phrase that we use, but what does it really mean? And I'm hearing over and over again, carbon capture, carbon capture, and I still can't get my arms around it. What is carbon capture and why should I care? Okay, so carbon capture really means carbon dioxide capture, and that is preventing it from going into the atmosphere as an effort to fight climate change. And most carbon capture forms are in the use of solvent to absorb and in many cases react with carbon dioxide. And then you take that solvent, distill off the acid gases like carbon dioxide, H2S. And then you have the CO2 in a separate stream in a concentrated form. And then you can compress it and send it off. What you do with it is a separate topic. But aside from solvents, there's also membrane technologies. And both of these have been around for at least 70 years, the solvents and the membranes both. The membranes have a couple of challenges with the low product pressure, so your compression gets to be a little more expensive. And then also with the purity, that the resulting purity isn't quite as high as the solvents. You've also got things like solid adsorbents. Using those, you can get to direct air capture, which means you just take it out of the atmosphere. Although again, the partial pressure of CO2 is pretty low, so those take a fair amount of energy to accomplish their task. And then you've got the strange and unusual, the new developing technologies like using bacteria and algae to capture the CO2 from a stream and then turn it into a soil amendment for the agriculture industry. That sounds very interesting. Now, you said 70 years, so we've been doing this all along and nobody knows about it or what? We've been doing it since around the 50s. Usually, or it started off anyway, as a means to fight corrosion of the equipment. And then it was in part to protect the catalyst, because H2S anyway is at least a common catalyst poison. And then because of the Clean Air Act starting in 1970 and amended since then, we're doing it to comply with the federal regulations and keep the environment clean, stop acid rain, that kind of thing. So are we measuring progress on this, or how do you measure progress on this, and is the U.S. leading the way on this, or what's happening in other countries? Sure, happy to discuss. You know, many companies, and especially asset owners, have a very good idea about their emissions and usage of resources across their plants and from all different facets. They know how much water they use, they know how much electricity and energy they use, they know how much hydrogen they produce, and what their emissions are generally. And so many companies have now set their own internal targets to try and reduce carbon emissions from their facilities and other emissions as well. Methane's another one that's often discussed. And also make sure that they're in alignment with the community that they're in. Around the world, like you mentioned, Russell, there's different approaches to energy transition. The UK has some great examples of industry and the government and communities coming together to plan hubs where they can have different emitters using shared infrastructure to try and lower overall the cost of this carbon capture effort. In Canada, you can look to the oil sands where companies like Suncor and others are looking at their own facilities, how much hydrogen they already produce, and trying to maximize use of that hydrogen inside of their facilities. When you maximize hydrogen use, you're reducing um, burning of fossil fuels and also reducing carbon emissions generally. Okay, you just you said a couple things that are music to my ears. 
First of all, you mentioned private entities along with government entities in partnership. That's not necessarily music to my ears, but you threw in the third thing there, and I think this is crucial. You said communities coming together, and I think that is so crucial that we have, well, as you said, communities coming together. We don't need this us against them type thing, and in fact, for those who want to be against oil and gas and you know it's all bad and all we care about is dirty air and dirty water and pushing grandma off the side of the cliff or whatever you know i'd like to follow them around with a camera for 48 hours and say you can't use anything that doesn't have to do with oil and gas i mean you we're reduced to third world status or caveman status you know without it and so we need these communities coming together the other thing that was music to my ears you're talking about maximizing the hydrogen use And I really believe, and we say this over and over again on this program, the oil and gas industry is not going to be the big bad guy in the environment. They're not the problem. They're going to be the solution. And one of the ways they're going to be the solution is good old capitalism and, you know, the old oil man mentality. They're going to figure out how to make money off of this and clean the environment at the same time. And those things are happening, aren't they? You know, I think that there are a lot of changes happening across the industry. And part of that is cultural. Part of that is commitment to the environment that every company has made. Um, But also, you know, energy has provided for decades great jobs, great jobs. And uh, certainly when I was 18 years old and walking into a refinery for my first time, that's where I got my start. I was very glad to get my start there. We have a new generation of people that we're trying to attract and to retain into this class of projects and these types of energy producing fields. And there's going to continue to be a desire to make sure that every project that we build has as clean a footprint, as low a carbon footprint as possible. And I think that that is really getting back to your community discussion. That's something that the community want. That is people and people as they're coming through school and coming and joining our industry. That's something that they want. So we are seeing a desire to participate in these types of projects from both ends of that. And to me, that's a very positive thing that's happening today. So you mentioned something interesting. I should have picked up on this at the beginning. We got to talking about Bechtel, and then we moved right in here to energy transition. Generally, I like to get a little, you know, personal background on folks and that sort of thing. This podcast is heard in over 100 countries, and so people kind of like some of the personal interest stuff and who we're talking to because with the advent of COVID and we started doing podcasts remotely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've interviewed people in Dubai and, you know, London and Paris and all over the world. But we're sitting here in Bechtel's Houston office as we speak right now. We're actually doing a live face-to-face podcast, which is only the second one I've done since COVID. So you said you walked into a refinery when you were 18 years old. Tell us the story on that. Sure. Well, list a little bit about myself. I'm Canadian. I'm from New Brunswick, Canada. That's also the home to Canada's largest refinery, their Irving Oil Refinery. And I was working for a small instrumentation and electrical company. And that's how I walked into the refinery. There were very large turnarounds that were happening, a lot of local employment. 
And so I worked as the assistant to the instrumentationalist. My job was to do all of the testing books. So I used to climb up the columns and do the tests with him and count the valves and count all the pressure transmitters. And I really learned a lot. But, you know, one of Now you're going to school during this time? I was. I was starting university. And, you know, one of the best things that happened, me walking onto that job site, was that I really found an opportunity to travel the world after that. You know, where I'm from as heavy industry, but also very agriculture-based, and being able to walk onto a refinery and get that type of experience in the energy industry really gave me a path to go do some other things. And since then, I've worked all around the world for Bechtel, particularly, lots of field projects, but lots of projects in corporate and finance as well. All right. Well, Martin, what about you? You win an Olympic gold medal or tell us something special about you. Well, no gold medals here, but I grew up in Corpus Christi, went to college at the Texas a and University in nearby Kingsville, Texas, got a master's degree in natural gas engineering, then went to the University of Houston for a PhD. I did not get the PhD, but I got a wife instead, and I'm told that was a good trade. Yeah, because you know about PhDs, those are doctors who don't do anybody any good, you know. That's what I've heard. I know a few PhDs who might disagree, but that's what I've heard. <laughs> then went to work in field service in the process water industry. Did that for three years. Worked for 10 years as a licensor of Klaus and Klaus tail gas units and mean units, sour water stripping, that kind of thing. And then came to Bechtel 11 years ago. I'm now the manager of Sulfur Technologies. And here at Bechtel, uh, that includes mean units, sour water stripping, Klaus units, Klaus tail gas units, other sulfur processing units like, you know, low-cat sulfurot, sulfurox, merox, that kind of thing. Brace yourself, on-purpose H2S production. Yeah, I do have to brace myself because I'm an old mud engineer, you know. I've had all the H2S certifications and scared to death of it. Uh, why would you make H2S on purpose? Well, there's three markets for that, actually. One is in the mining and metals industry. So the cobalt and molybdenum that the hydroprocessors like so much turns out to extract it from the ore, you use hydrogen sulfide that's also used in conjunction with some other not-so-friendly chemicals as an animal feed supplement. And then the most interesting one is actually in the battery industry. It turns out lithium sulfide makes a pretty good battery material, and you start off that process with high-pressure, high-purity H2S. So these are batteries for electric cars? Uh, electric cars and a variety of other uses, yes. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, let's get back to carbon capture projects. We got any of these going on in the United States? We do. And actually, I'm going to let Martin talk a little bit about a project we're working on right now. Sure. We've got a project going on in California where the asset owner has a uh, fuel gas, which is pretty dirty. A lot of CO2, a lot of NGLs that they like to recover, but they use this fuel gas with a net purchase natural gas backup going to some expensive equipment. And so they're worried if they just take out the NGLs that the heating value would be so different from purchased natural gas that they might trip their units if there was ever a need to switch to purchased natural gas. So the objective is going to be to remove the CO2, then remove the NGLs, and what's left over is methane and not a whole lot else. So that's going to be a good substitute for them. The technology that they're using is pretty new. It's got a lot of pilot plant work and a lot of lab work, but no commercial units yet. So the owner is actually taking the brave step of building a commercial demonstration unit. And that's what Bechtel Energy Technologies Solutions, as well as Agilis, are, are working together to help take this new technology to market. Okay, so you're building a machine. Is he having to build a whole new facility? This is a processing unit. So it's analogous to an amine unit. Okay. It's about that level of complexity. 
So they'll do the commercial demonstration unit, find out whatever there is to learn from doing that, and then they'll go full scale. Okay. And so we have some new projects, new facilities that are being built specifically to enhance carbon capture. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. There's some good examples around the world, actually, of already developed and in-use carbon capture facilities. Shell Quest is one of them in the Alberta oil sands and Shell's planning another project called Polaris that is on a larger scale and does something very similar. But You know, there are novel technologies and innovations in the carbon capture space being tested around the U.S. today. And that's part of what Martin's team, along with BETS, does is help to study what some of these technologies are, where their development and use case is, and helps our customers pick the best ones for their project. Okay, then one final question. You know, there's a lot of facilities out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not new and they don't meet all this new technology. So are there ways to decarbonize existing facilities? There are. You know, and in some facilities, before you ever get to the point where you install a carbon capture unit, there's some really great things that you can do. I mean, one is to look at the energy sources that are coming in to power your plant. Is there a way to have a more sustainable energy coming in or renewable energy coming into your facility? Within your facility, can you use less of the resources you already have? Can you use less power? Can you become more electrically efficient? Can you make sure that you're using your waste heat in a novel way such that you're not having to power a new furnace, as an example, or burn additional fossil fuels? Then you can take hydrogen and you can increase the volume of that hydrogen in some of the feedstocks that are going into burning and creating energy within your existing facility. That lowers carbon emissions right off. And then you would look at things like installing or retrofitting a carbon capture unit. So there are a lot of different ways to reduce and decarbonize an existing facility. What we're sharing with our customers is we think it's a good idea to know as much as you can about the different novel technologies that are out there, but take some concrete progressive steps today and looking at your existing resources in order to use less. There you go. Use less and maximize, mm-hmm. just like we were talking about earlier. Listen, I'm really glad to have been able to get you guys on the podcast, let people know about Agilus and about, what do you call it, BTS? B-E-T-S, Oh, yes. B-E-T-S. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bechtel Energy Technologies and Solutions. We will definitely put your URL LinkedIn contact information. So because this is all well above my pay grade, but there's people out there listening that may want more information. We'll put Bechtel's website in the show notes as well. Again, I want to thank you guys for coming on the show. And as always, I want to thank everyone for listening. Please tune in again next week for another episode of OGGNHSE podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Please leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast platform you listen to. Like us on LinkedIn. Tell all your friends about us, and we'll see you next time. Tune in next week for another engaging episode of the Oil & Gas HSE podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.